Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today just outside Keswick, the weather improving but only gradually, still plenty of sleet around on the roads and snow on the tops and I'm in the company of author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello Mark. Hello Dave, lovely to be back with you. Now we need to start off with an exciting announcement Mark. We're nearly 100. Oh gosh, uh, and I don't walk out with walking sticks. I'm quite compass bent as... You don't mean years, do you? I don't. 100 episodes young. Ah. Oh, episodes. Ah, yes. Well, you may remember three years ago or four years ago now, and we set off from Wasdale Head on an October, I think, morning to climb Scorefell Pike and... It's been downhill all the way since. <laughs> it's been up and down, but it's been the most joyous ride. I've loved every minute of it. We've had a great time. But anyway, why are we telling you this? Firstly, because we have a special event happening later this year, Country Stride Live. Yes, it's true. <laughs> We're getting together some of our friends for the usual mix of learning, of bonhomie, and a little bit of live music, almost certainly in Ambleside, almost certainly in October. And if you want to be first in line to grab your tickets for that, then you can sign up for the newsletter on our website, www.countrystride.co.uk. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is, for our special 100th edition, we want to try and explore the question, what makes the Lake District magic? Absolutely. There's so many aspects of the Lake District that are so compelling. Cumbria has everything. It has the heritage of many generations of people. It's got the most amazing landscape. It is a cultural hub of our national identity. And so many people love it for all its qualities. Yeah, and it's an interesting question, isn't it? What is it that makes Cumbria and the Lake District in particular so magic? What is that intangible thing you know, and it's going to be different for everybody. Is it something to do with the weather? Is it the proximity of the fells? Is it that mix, that patchwork quilt of landscape features? Is it the heritage? So we're asking for our listeners to get in touch with us and let us know what is it that makes the Lake District magic for you. Now, this could be a memory. It could be a period in life where the lakes came to mean so much. To contribute to that show, all you need to do is go to our website, again, www.countrystride.co.uk, go to the Contact Us form and write a short paragraph, giving your name, and then just putting into words, as best you can, what is it that makes this place magic for you. And we will round up the best of those while we go for our 100th walk. So, um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you on that. Now we come to today's podcast and we have the pleasure today, Mark, of one of Lakeland's living great characters. Absolutely. Eric Robson is probably, over the last 50 or 60 years, one of the most distinguished broadcasters and advocates and champions of this county. And it's a tremendous thrill for us to be able to spend good time and learn something about this great man. He's got a lovely story, is Eric. Born north of the border, he came south, came to, uh, grew up in Carlisle, and has been a Cumbrian man ever since. His heart and soul in his beloved Wasdale, uh, where he moved, I think, 30, 40 years ago now. Among the broadcasting he's done, 
events including uh, the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, many Remembrance Sundays. To radio listeners nationwide, almost certainly best known for his long-term chairmanship of Gardner's Question Time. But for many of our listeners, I think it's going to be his connection with a certain AEW mark. Yes, indeed. Alfred Wainwright was very special to Eric. The series of programmes he did with Richard Else as the producer was a magical series. And Eric performed marvels in actually (laughs) trying to get Alfred Wainwright to express himself in a way that, for a very private man, reached out to the audience. And Eric used all his guile as a broadcaster to achieve this. Right, well, we're passing ways now, Mark. Rather unusually, I'm getting in the car. I'm going down to Wasdale, where I'll interview Eric. And then we'll meet back here in a couple of hours' time. Yes, I really look forward to catching up later. I'm here today in the study of Eric Robson, OBE. I've got a lovely log fire burning in the corner. There's books around all of the walls here, and many of them, as you might expect, dedicated to the Lake District. A uh, little bust on the desk there of Alfred Wainwright, one of a very small number made, I believe. Eric, let's start at the beginning. You were born north of the border and came down to Carlisle relatively early in life. Yes, I was born in Newcastleton, where my grandfather was the station master on the Waverley Line. And uh, my dad was a local authority fireman. He'd been a professional soldier in the Scots Guards. Because of his moving around, we eventually moved. I was five, we moved to Carlisle. And uh, I spent all the rest of my childhood in, in Carlisle. Went to the grammar school and... Uh, accidentally <laughs> got into broadcasting. The only reason I, I got into broadcasting at all was because I happened to be in a in a city with a television station. You know, if I'd been in any one of a dozen cities that weren't television accommodating, mm. uh, I would probably never have done it. But anyway, the job at Border Television eventually came up. I didn't apply for it. My mother did <laughs> because... Uh, she and I were having a minor disagreement because I wanted to be an actor and she wanted me to do something sensible in life, like be an accountant or some such thing. Anyway, she applied for this job at Border TV. I went along for the interview and said, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I didn't apply for this. I don't want the job. Um, but Derek Beatty, that a lot of our listeners will remember as the famous head of production, he presented Mr and Mrs. I mean, he was deeply into local broadcasting mm. and taking local broadcasting to a national level. And he said at the interview, I'm impressed the way you handled an interview you didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, So I'll tell you what I'll do. If you take this job, I guarantee in two years you can have a job in production. Mm. And he was as good as his word. Two years later, I gave up pen pushing and became assistant floor manager. This was the start of a career that lasted 50, 60 years for you. Paint a picture of Carlisle at that time, Eric. It was, and still is, a lovely city. It was a city where things were done properly. 
a great museum in Tully House, for example, a really well-managed television station. There's a lovely quote in your autobiography, Outside Broadcaster, where you write, In almost seven years, I visited every nook and granny, and it does say granny, in the border patch from Berwick to Stranraer, Peebles to Kendall. It's an odd region, the bit left over after all the other ITV companies had scraped out their respective transmission areas. 650,000 people, 4.5 million sheep, but what we lacked in armed robberies and serial killings we made up for with really interesting stories. And a theme that, that runs through your book is there is so much interest in the Northwest that perhaps gets neglected on the national stage. Yes, I think that's I think that's probably true. I think it'd be fair to say it was more difficult to break out of television in that northern corner because you weren't regarded as proper broadcasters in some strange way. And I set about proving that that wasn't the case. So I was I was very lucky. I worked with very talented people, and we came up with program ideas which really put this place on the map. <laughs> I suppose to the surprise of some of the people from the posh Northwest, you know, I didn't make a hash of it. In every corridor, there were names that you recognised of people who had built fine careers. The new broadcasting house in Manchester was bursting with ideas. There's a, another nice quote in the book, we knew our patch and what the people in it wanted to see. I'm just wondering if you can... Talk more about that. What is it that the audience up here wanted to see? They wanted to be taken seriously. Uh, And that was the great thing about working the patch, that as soon as people who were taking part in the programme saw that you were serious, saw that you were treating them as proper human beings and not as a sort of riffraff that you were coming in as a soft southerner to teach them how to lead their lives, if you came in and treated them honestly and decently, Mm. you've got great help from them. Mm. Great help. Now, let's move on to Wasdale, this valley that you've called home for many, many years. Um, When did you first come to Wasdale? 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Right. It would be routine, run-of-the-mill news report. But uh, Wasdale became very serious part of my life. You can't pull up at the mouth of the Wasdale Valley and see that range of mountains all around you and not be impressed by that, mm. you, know? Mm. you know. However posh you may be in Manchester or Liverpool or wherever, this beats you hands down. And because of that, I fell in love with the place. Simple as that. Right. So this is before you'd moved here. Yes. You'd fallen in love with this as a valley. Yeah. And then eventually, another accident happened. <laughs> uh, one Sunday morning, I was moonlighting on a current affairs programme. Sunday morning discussion programme. And one of the fellow panellists, there was a chap called Tom Purdom, who turned out to be a fell farmer from Wasdale. And he and I... Struck up a conversation after the programme. I said, I've always had a hankering to do some farming. And he said, yeah, come down, you can have a, have a look at what we do. I went down and the relationship blossomed and we kept in touch. And I came down to Wasdale and stayed with Tom. 
Right. Uh, Where was Tom farming, Eric? Uh, he was farming at uh, Ben Garth Farm, which is just round the corner. Right. And, uh, and he was running Herdwick's, I guess. Oh, he was running Tom a full-scale sheep farm. Right. And with cattle as well. Right, OK. Sadly, at about this time, my father died. Died very young. Uh, and... And because of that, uh, Tom Purdom was thereafter always known as Father Tom because he adopted me as his adoptive son. And gradually the farming bug took over. Mm. I was farming Herdwicks, I was farming beef cattle, particularly fond of the fact that I was breeding pedigree Tamworth pigs, which are a rare breed, Clydesdale horses, I mentioned that. Wow. Uh, Bred Clydesdale horses. What was it about the farming bug that got you? Because of the contact it gave you with the landscape. Okay. I just loved it. And you were getting your hands dirty with you. I mean, you were going out onto the fell and... Helping at the gathers and... Right. Whatever. Oh, goodness. Okay, so... It, I was this... no good at it, you know. I was hopeless <laughs> at it. But you were welcomed. Oh, yeah. I don't know where you kept your sheep, but was that on Wasdale Common? So that's Joss's country. Yes. And, yeah. Joss became a friend and it was just great, great fun. And, right. uh, and had you moved here at no, that time then? So you're, no, uh, you're doing this kind of vicariously at this moment in your life? Yes, that's right. Pretending I was doing an apprenticeship. Right, in farming. <laughs> in farming. It was a perfectly natural thing to do. Yeah, I wasn't being snooty with them. They weren't being snooty with me. It worked out really well. And eventually, Palatom was constantly saying, you know, you, I was living in Manchester, working out of New Broadcasting House in, in Manchester. And uh, Tom says, really, it's time you had a base here. One day he rang up and he said, I've got the ideal place for you. We met up at the bottom of the farm lane here and he walked me up through the farmyard and back again. I said, I'm afraid your idea of ideal and mine aren't quite the same because the place had been largely abandoned. Roofs had fallen in. Every door and window had to be replaced. To be clear, this is a a very old farm, isn't it, that you now live in? It is. The first record of it is the 16th century. But uh, Tom persuaded me that we could do something with it. He had a caravan. He would move the caravan to the site. We could get on with the repairs to the place. And so so it happened. We basically spent a mortgage in two years... (laughs) doing the place up uh, but it's just wonderful yeah and you've been here ever since and i mean the location is absolutely fabulous what was it like eric when you you realized actually this is home now i got what i wanted my dream of living in wasdale came true not many people can say that it was just perfect basically this ruined house was advertised and the uh Landlady agent rang me up and said, there are something like 27 people interested in it. And uh, a week later, he rang back again and said, um, obviously the other people had been to see it for the first time. And uh, he said, we have one. And that's you. (laughs) (laughs) So so, uh, that's how we, we got the place. For the many years that you were farming, and I think you write in your book that you were farming at the weekend and you were broadcasting about farming during the week. What did you learn about farming? Were there any kind of lessons that came out of it? One of the things I learned was the importance 
I will give you a little lecture here, the importance of protecting rare breeds. It's too easy to just throw them away and go for the thing that is biggest, fastest, whereas rare breeds have so much to offer and need to be kept in good heart uh, because we never know when we're going to need them. I mean, that's why we bred pedigree Tamworth pigs for so long, because if they go, they go, and we won't get them back. So we need to preserve them and look after them. And that is happening now. The wonderful thing about farming in rare breeds is the stories that are embedded in their survival. One of the things that came out in the studies of Tamworth pigs is that there were very few bloodlines left in this country, and yet there were a very large number of bloodlines in America. Mm. And why? And the reason is that because they've got that orange pigment in their skin, white pigs suffer from sunburn. The pigment in the Tamworth stops that happening. And so a lot of them were sent with the convict ships because they would survive. Thankfully, they still have. So we have this picture of you starting a life here in this valley, this valley that you'd always loved. But at the same time, your broadcasting career is really taking off. Some of the broadcasts you did include the handover of Hong Kong back to China. You did state openings of Parliament. You did Remembrance Sundays and probably most notably uh, the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. Which I only had a very small role in. Right. Uh, but it, it turned out to be one of the most extraordinary few minutes of broadcasting because there was lots of commentators uh, along the route. But the piece that I specifically had was what is still thought of as the most extraordinary moment of the journey to Westminster Abbey. And that was the moment that the two boys joined the procession, fell in behind their mother's coffin. And I've got to say that was the most difficult two or three minutes of broadcasting that I've ever done in my life, getting the tone of that right. How do you gauge the tone of those kind of state occasions? You hope that you're giving people not just interest, but comfort. The broadcast that I've most enjoyed, people might find it strange that I use that term, uh, was Remembrance Sunday. Because Remembrance Sunday at the Cenotaph and the march past of veterans, you just knew that there were tens of thousands of people around the country, who were taking solace from what you were saying. It's a huge amount of responsibility that you're talking about there, particularly with these big state occasions. Does that weigh on you as a commentator? No, because, well, it did at the start, but it didn't weigh heavily because you'd done it, you'd discussed with the people who were taking part in the event, the military personnel, and uh, and they told you in no uncertain terms if they thought you'd got things wrong, and so you didn't get them wrong again. It was a challenge, but it was so satisfying. We'll move on to one of the roles that you're probably best known for, Gardener's Question Time. How did that come about? How did you get approached for that role? Well, I was working for the BBC in Manchester, uh, working out of New Broadcasting House, and one morning... I happened to be going down to the, the canteen to get my morning bacon sandwich. 
and walking on the corridor in, on the fourth floor, I heard a voice behind me saying, that's the voice I want for my new programme. I turned around and the person saying it was Michael Green, who was the, I think, head of BBC in, in the North region. And uh, the programme that he was looking for the voice for was Garner's Question Time. I was approached by the production company and I said, you do realise I know nothing about gardening. And they said, you don't need to. That's what the panel's there for. You're there to keep gardeners in order. (laughs) 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 And so I started looking after gardeners question time. Eventually it is a mere 25 years. (laughs) And this was a really lovely gig for you. It was. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The panellists were, were great, and they welcomed me. And you were travelling, I mean, huge amounts of travel for this. That was the curse. When I gave up Garland's Question Time after the 25 years, uh, yes, I missed the programme, but by God, I didn't miss the M6. <laughs> and, the, yeah. you know, the fact that you'd be doing a programme in Swansea, the next week you were in the Outer Hebrides, and then the week after that you were in York, and so it just went on, you know, thousands of miles a year. And driving back every time thereafter to Wasdale. Yes. <laughs> did you pick up a love of gardening from your chairmanship? Oh, yes, I did. I had no trouble learning the ropes because they were very happy to keep me in the loop. Each week you sort of picked up from where you left off the, the week before. And... Uh, It was a great programme. Why does it work so well as a format, do you think? Because it's simple. Mm. It's it's a very simple format. I kept it that way as long as I was chairing it. We weren't overrun by features where you would go off and do smart stuff. The bulk of it was done in the garden that you had visited and the people locally would give us their knowledge and their growing wisdom. And we had a bunch of people on the panel who were just brilliant. They were the best in the business. Simple as that. If you compare the way they come across to quite a lot of gardening programmes where there's features here and features there. and On Gardener's Question Time, my job was to keep the panellists comfortable mm. and get the best from them and know what their strengths were and be able to, to touch on it. It was such a loved programme, remains a very much loved programme. Again, there's a sense of responsibility, isn't it? Listeners will let you know if you upset them. Oh, yes, they will. But, you know, I always used to say to them, I've got this right, and we've got this right. If the moment that the programme hits the air, and I've done my 40-second intro, the moment that the panellists come in to start answering the first question of the programme you know it's gardener's question time. The voices are the same week after week after week. It's family, Mm. gardener's question time. Every week, it's a privilege to be part of the family. Simple as that. Mm. Did you end up with a favourite plant? Uh, So many. Right. You'll run out of tape. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a couple. (laughs) Uh, well, I'm I'm very fond of trees, mm. and uh, I've turned the grounds here into habitat. Right. Um, for wildlife. Yeah, for yeah. wildlife. 
looking at you on the way on the way in to do this conversation with you on the way in I, I passed my two tame robins quietly scoffing the, the food I put out for them just before you arrived <laughs> we're moving on in your career now Eric to meeting one of Lakeland's great figures Alfred Wainwright uh, you made a series of programs with him and probably got to know him in a professional capacity as well as anybody. How did you first meet him? What, what was the backstory there? The backstory was that Richard Else, a great friend of mine, had always wanted to make a programme with Wainwright, a television programme. And he eventually approached him, talked through what they would do with the programme and the rest of it. And Wainwright said, I don't want nothing to do with these television people. The great and the good of the Lake District. And Richard, thinking on his feet, jumped in and said, no, 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 it's not, that's not at all what we're planning to do. We would like to make it with a, a young fellow farmer from Wasdale called Eric Robson. And uh, Wainwright graciously uh, said, OK, well, I'll meet him. And Betty backed us up and, because she was quite keen that he did this programme as well. So I was summoned to uh, a greasy spoon in, in Kendall. <laughs> this wasn't the little chef. <laughs> I can't remember which one it was, but it was a greasy spoon in Kendall, and we sat and chatted, myself, Richard, Betty, and A.W., mm. and A.W. didn't say a word. Betty did all the talking from their side of the table. It chatted on for a bit, you know, with no input from A.W., until, out of the corner of my eye, I, I saw a slice of boiled ham disappearing off my plate. <laughs> And uh, looked at it, and, and Betty said, "Oh, don't, don't worry about him. He's taking it home for Totty the cat." And uh, so I was invited to meet Totty the cat, and uh, I liked liked her very much. She was a lovely creature. I, I always reckon that because Totty got on with me, that's why Wainwright agreed to let me do the programmes with him. <laughs> Other than nabbing your ham what was your first impressions of aw as, as a man more or less the image of him that was put about of being a bit of a curmudgeonly old duffer who was monosyllabic i thought it's going to be a slightly difficult <laughs> challenge <laughs> but having said that i was entirely wrong because he wasn't like that at all he was a kind gentle generous philosophical man with great ideas and with an unbridled knowledge of the Lakeland Mountains. And gradually, I began to work out how to get him to say things, how to get him to vocalise his ideas. And when he did do that, he was, he was brilliant. How did you do that? It sounds very grand, but I think he just trusted me to let him have his say, to let him do what was important. It was culminated with the, the very first trip out it wasn't in the late district. <laughs> this was Ingleborough, was it? It was Penny Ghent. He was still fit enough to actually get up onto the shoulder of Penny Ghent. And the way it was going to go, because I said to uh, Richard Else, having been talking to A.W. quietly while the crew were away doing some other GVs and whatever, you do realise that A.W. has written his own script for this programme. Oh dear, said Richard. And uh, we'll just have to see how it works. And so we very slowly found our way up onto the, the shoulder of Penny Ghent. 
according to the Wainwright script, I would turn up there and against the stone wall was this old chap with a flat cap admiring the view. And I looked down and here was one of his books open beside him. And I was supposed to say, ah, you've been reading A.W. too. And the old codger would say, well, I, I knew him a bit. Oh, my God. Richard and I had organised that we would film both versions at the same time. So we'd film A.W.'s version of the programme and we'd film Richard Elsie's version of the programme. And hopefully we'd be able to make something of the, between the two. And uh, we got halfway down to Horton in Ribblesdale, I think it was, and he hadn't said anything we could use at all. Nothing. He'd asked a lot of questions about Herdwick Sheep. So far as Richard's script was concerned, forget it. It was out the window. But halfway down, I thought, I've got to do something here to get something that's usable. So I said to A.W., well, tell me what gave you the idea of doing this series of books in the first place. And there was a long pause and a very big puff of three nuns tobacco smoke. And he says, you can't ask me that. You don't know who I am yet. (laughs) And out of the corner of my eye, the sound recordist, because he was working on radio mics, Sandra Cortis stumbled and went into a peat bog. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> and we eventually got down, I think it was Horton and Ribblesdale, we got down to, and <laughs> what was supposed to happen in uh, AW's script was that somebody came up, was walking through the yard, and finger up, pointed, walked across, slapped AW on the back and said, Hello, AW! <laughs> What are you doing here? <laughs> anyway, it, it wasn't the greatest of starts, but we, we eventually managed to make a, a whole series of programmes. So effectively, his script was that you had no idea who he was at all. That's right. It was a joke, really, at the expense of the production company. Yeah. Which was extraordinary. <laughs> You do write in your book, he wasn't easy, the programmes were made despite him in many ways. But you did find, over time, techniques for getting more from him. Yes, and and also knowing the, the aspects of a story or the aspects of a location that would inspire him. So a lot of what I did, if you look back at the programmes, I would say two or three words, just a little hint. Uh, because I knew that something off the back of that would give us something usable for the programme. Eventually, as he trusted me more and more, we used to have really lengthy conversations, but he always used to do it when the the film crew wasn't there. Absolute maddening. Uh, But what he hadn't taken into account was the radio mics again. We weren't cheating on him because we were telling Betty who was out with us all the time, exactly what we were doing. Mm. If she'd thought we were being horrible to him, it would have been stopped. Yeah. But she was. She knew we were being perfectly civil and just interested. We were interested in him, interested in what was making him tick. And what did make him tick, Eric? Oh, well, it wasn't just the view. Again, that was a mistake that people made about him. They thought that all he was interested in was the view. It wasn't. He was interested in the way that people reacted to the view, the way that people reacted to the, the landscape in particular. He, I mean, he would appear to have conflicting views. In one breath, he would say, what a shame it was that this view, to my right, is spoiled by mining. 
quarrying. But then three sentences later, he would say, it's a great shame, isn't it, that there's none of this work for local people left. Mm. You know, that's all gone now. And that somehow uh, diminishes the view. Uh, and there's lots of stuff like that. Uh, and gr- gradually, as we spent more time together, he just opened up more and more. And it was never easy. You couldn't just turn up at 20 past nine at Mardale and get him to tell the story of the, the dam and the, the shame that had despoiled this lovely part of the Lake District, all that sort of stuff. You couldn't do that. But by just being gentle and uh, giving time to generate his ideas, he was great. He also had a lovely sense of humour. Sense of humour is hardly ever mentioned in any of the books about him, but he did have a great sense of humour. We were on High Street one day, and we just finished doing some pieces to camera with Wainwright. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw somebody descending on us. And as I say in the book, he had to be an American, judging by the <laughs> colour of the clothes he was wearing. And he was walking towards us with his hand outstretched. He'd recognised A.W. And A.W., out of the corner of his eye, saw him coming as well and turned to me. The guy was only about ten feet away. A.W. turned to me and said, I think I need a pee. (laughs) (laughs) And not even the pushiest of Americans will carry on with a hand outstretched (laughs) when that's the threatened expression of welcome that he's going to get. (laughs) When the cameras stop rolling and you're, I think... I think Richard told us a lovely story about being in Mardale at the Horsewater Hotel. When he relaxed, knowing that effectively he's not working on the films, did you see a different side to him there, or was it was there a kind of consistency? One of the difficulties that AW had was a complete lack of understanding of the filming technique. Well, why should he have? He drew everything by hand, you know. He didn't have visual aids that he hadn't drawn himself. And he always used to say, and we never never cured him of this, that uh, if we'd be standing there doing a piece to camera, and I would be standing beside him, and the camera would be on him, and I would ask him a question, and he would say, why is the camera looking at me? It should be looking at that view. <laughs> they could never understand that. But equally, his sense of humour kicked in. I remember once, but we were talking about the fact that Wainwright used to spend... You know, in his younger days, he used to spend nights out on the hill because mm. he, he didn't have a car. He never learned to drive. And, you know, he'd either missed the bus or he was going to come back to the same place the next morning. And therefore, why go home tonight? He was frightened of cows, mm. but he still used to spend nights on the hill. Uh, so he'd get behind a stone wall in the hope that if the cow was anywhere, it's on the other side of the stone wall, it wouldn't bother him. And we were telling this story somewhere in the Northern Fells, I think. And uh, he and I were standing in the shelter of a, a sort of field barn. And the crew were out in the pasture. And we started talking. And just as we started talking, it started to rain. And I've never known A.W. do a longer piece <laughs> because the crew were out there and he just knew that the longer he talked, the wetter they got. <laughs> Wainwright was notoriously 
guarded as a, as a human being. Did you think of yourself as a friend? Do you think you became friends? I, I think I think we did. And I think that was partly because one day I opened up to him and I said, I hope you can forgive me for destroying your way of life. And he humphed a bit. But that was true. I had, you know, for years and years and years he could be out there on the hill doing his research, doing his drawings, and nobody recognised who he was. Not even when the books came out, because, you know, in the books, there are, yes, there are pen portraits of him, but, you know, tiny little pen portraits stuck in a bottom right-hand corner, and it's always the back of his head. He's always looking elsewhere. So he, he was free to come and go. People didn't spot him, generally. And then suddenly we had him supping with the devil. He was on national television. He couldn't hide any longer. He still tried. I remember once we were, it was a Saturday, I think we'd been tipped off that there was going to be a, a sighting of him, <laughs> like the great white whale you know, at Black Sail Youth Hostel. So we turned up. We were filming in the air anyway, I think. And we, we turned up and there was about 20 or 30 people there, all with their Wainwright books, where he's got an autograph. And they stood and they stood and they stood and he didn't and he didn't and he didn't. He didn't arrive. Uh, because, of course, he was in another part of the forest by then. That's how he got away with it, because, you know, he'd do his book that comprehensively covered this particular area. And by the time the keen fell walkers had caught up with it, bought the book, he was gone. He, yeah. was, he was on the next book. So why did these people think that there was going to be a sighting of him? Well, just the word got out. Right. <laughs> that he was in the area doing some research or something. Something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And his relationship with celebrity was a bit of a strange one, wasn't it? Because in some ways he liked a bit of celebrity, didn't he? He certainly liked responding to letters. Yes, as long as it's on his terms. Mm. Uh, and meeting in person was not on his terms. He was quite happy to write to people and uh, keep up a conversation with them. If you just look at the Hunter Davis collection of letters, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of them. Mm. But he was in the safety of the back bedroom, Castle Green and Kendall, you know. <laughs> he grudgingly went to London to get his MBE. Betty persuaded him that he had to do a bit of personal, you know, not much, certainly not responding to every request for it. But Betty always used to say, you know, that she'd be there to look after him and make sure he got away and he was never trapped and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And she said to me, don't be silly, you haven't destroyed his life, you know. He's perfectly all right with this. He thanks you for being so considerate to him. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Betty. The series became cult viewing uh, and was very, very successful. Did that surprise you? No, because this had been building for years. People had said, why is there not a television series about A.W.? You know, he's an obvious candidate for it. It just took a bit of persuading to get him to come out from behind his cloud of three nuns and say more than half a dozen words. You've been chair of the Wainwright Society, I think from the very inception. And Wainwright's one of these characters who attracts devotees, people who are absolutely passionate, not just about his work, but about the man himself. 
Why do you think it is? What is it about his personality that drives that? Because it's, uh, sightings are rare. You know, he has a rarity value. And it's a rarity value that lies alongside having pictorial guides, which are much, much more than guidebooks. People from time to time compare Wainwright's books with other guidebooks. And there is no comparison. You know, you've got something which is so personal and so delightful. I can't think of another set of guidebooks that compare. And looking back now, Eric, it's just over 70 years since his ascent of Dull Crag, which was to mark the start of his Easternfells guidebook. What do you think A.W.'s place in Cumbrian history is? I don't think that anybody will ever beat him for interpretation of the Lakeland landscape. I think people are probably stopping trying to do it because he is so good at it. He's so comprehensive and... He has taken with him so many generations of avid fell walkers you know, who've passed on the information to father, to son, to granddad has told the stories. And it's just a delight. The last time you were with AW, I believe, wasn't on the fells at all. It was at Blackburn Football Stadium, is that right? Yeah. You're pretty candid in the book that you met him towards the end of his life. And in fact, you say one of your regrets is that you didn't know him as a young man. But can you just talk us through a little bit that that last occasion that you had with him? Well, I've always found it slightly odd that I was talking with him about his favourite piece of grass in the whole of the Lake District. He says, well, I, I know what that is. It's the centre circle at Ewood Park, Blackbird Rovers Football Club, because that was a, one of his passions when we were out with him, he always had to be finished filming so he'd get back for the football results. You did some filming with him, did you? And, yeah. And did you know then that was going to be it? I had a pretty pretty clear idea, yeah. Our last programme together, we only got three days of filming and then uh, he was taken ill, never came filming again. So we had to uh, had to do whole programme without him. Let's move on to another project that celebrates the Lake District in a very different way. Your and Annette's company, Striding Edge, has put out Terry Abraham's films, which are, I think, remarkable in a, a different way. When did you first come across Terry and his work? Uh, it was, uh, as so many good ideas are, in the front bar of the Strands Hotel. No, there was tell. I was introduced to Terry, never met him before, and he talked about the films he would like to make. I said, well, we'll, we'll back you, we'll support you. He had no uh, financial support at all by that stage. And the three films that he went on to shoot and produce have become probably the most successful evocations of the fells put on film. What is the specific magic, do you think, of Terry's work? How it comes about is because he spends so much time on the hill. He loves wild camping. While the vast majority of people have taken their pictures and they're down in the bar in the valley, you know, he's out there with his tent waiting for the sunrise or waiting for the sunset. And he captures those moments that other less committed photographers miss. It's wonderful, mm. wonderful stuff. I mentioned the 
company that you run with your wife, Annette, and you produce films and release books to uh, a worldwide audience who adore the Lake District. What do you think it is about the Lake District that commands such loyalty and love for people all over the world? Well, obviously, there are the beautiful picture possibilities that Terry Abraham has harnessed. But beyond that, there's the life stories of the people who for generations have been using this landscape in various ways. It's not just a take-a-pretty-picture landscape. It's a landscape that's been worked. It's a landscape of complexity. I don't think there's any landscape in the rest of the UK that is as complex as this, with constantly changing patterns and pictures and stories, because the ghosts of the people who worked this landscape are still with us. We move closer to the present now, Eric, as we come to the end of the podcast. Um, In 2020, you were awarded an OBE for services to tourism. Unusually, you dedicated it to a place. You dedicated it to the county of Cumbria. Can you talk to us about why you did that? Well, because the county of Cumbria made it possible and encouraged me to unpick this landscape, unpick the stories of the landscape. This is, is and always will be home patch and anything I can do to encourage people to appreciate and look after these landscapes, I'll be proud to do it. Are you positive about the future of your beloved Lakeland, Eric? I am, because my great friend A.W. left us the handbook. Follow him and you won't go far wrong. journey's end and i'm back in keswick and i'm back with mark hello mark great to see you back dave that was one heck of a day out you've had a whiz down to wasdale great to meet eric down there we hinted at it before didn't we in terms of broadcasting and the north country full stop but cumbria in particular he stands pretty much supreme absolutely if i was wearing a hat now i'd be taking it off because quite frankly he is one of the great voices of cumbria He has stood fast for this county for all his life, and Cumbria matters. Yeah, there was that lovely little bit at the end, uh, quite emotional really, where he spoke about dedicating his OBE to the county of Cumbria, a very unusual move. Um, And he says, look, it made me. It's not only home, but it's given me a chance to unpick all those stories, to learn my trade. Um, That affection for place, absolutely shining through. Yes, it was a a fascinating uh, discussion, actually, that charted his relationship with Cumbria. I love the one about the Tamworth pigs, which was quite significant in terms of him becoming a farmer. This rootedness in the landscape mattered. He realised that this cultural landscape is an agricultural landscape, and he wanted to be part of that. Yeah, and always makes me laugh, some of the AW. Um, stories. We got some of that, didn't we, from Richard Else in a previous podcast, including bits of that story about the legendary first recording with Wainwright uh, and his attempt to craft this frankly bonkers script. 
I can hear that story any number of times. It's a good one. <laughs> it is indeed. You've been watching so many cowboys. This is it. <laughs> the cowboy connection, isn't it? <laughs> yes. The other anecdote that I really like, incidentally, and that's one I hadn't heard before, was about the moment it started raining at the back of Skiddor. And it was one of the very, very few times that Wainwright decided to extend his narrative for as long as possible to make the crew as wet as possible, <laughs> uh, which, wow. Very lovely. Although I knew Wainwright, I think Eric had the, had the best of times with him. He had a lovely time with him. Um, if you like what we do, we're on episode number... 96. For 95 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media. On Facebook and Twitter at Countrystride One. All kinds of photos and maps and marks of lovely linescapes to be found on that channel. If you like what we do, you can support us in one of three ways. You can buy any one of our Country Stride guidebooks to the Lake District. There are now four guidebooks. The Oldswater Way Official Guide, Penny Bradshaw's Literary Guide to Ambleside, the Oldswater Walking Companion and the Threlkeld Walking Companion. And soon, of course, Mark? The Ambleside Walking Companion, which we'll be going to press next month. Right, well, I, I have to deliver now. Thank you. Thank you for stitching me up on that one. And that's us, I think, for today from a slightly wintry Keswick. Still, uh, better days coming next week, I believe, as we roll towards the big number 100. 